Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right wing. So what are you, what are you, you look, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call him? What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacist and white supremacist. White supremacist and white supremacist. Stand back and stand by. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein. We just watched the first presidential debate. Um, it was kind of a doozy if uh, you have heard anything. Um, and so I guess, you know, Ezra, <laughs> we started a show called The Weeds some years ago uh, with the premise that we were going to talk about uh public policy like the real weeds uh, of the issues and i and i do always try to find like a weedsy angle and things uh if if i think about a show but like did you see anything in the course of this debate that could be characterized as like a a policy debate an argument something to delve into the weeds of sorry i'm taking a moment to answer because i'm trying to calibrate myself so I think people are going to hear me sounding very measured in this. And and I, I want to, like, as an emotional signposting thing, that is because I found tonight really unnerving. Um, two things I want to say right off the bat about the debate. So one, Donald Trump's performance was completely out of control. I don't mean it was good strategy or bad strategy. I'm not here to play some bullshit theater critic role. Like... Donald Trump performed like a lunatic. And I recognize that there was some strategy there. He was trying to knock Biden off of his game or maybe knock Biden into a senior moment they could clip and, and, and send out over YouTube or something. But throughout the whole debate, it was just a festival of endless interruptions, endless lying, just not being able to sit still and talk about anything for two seconds. It was a completely emotionally out of control performance. And it was real. It was authentic. Uh, you could look at Donald Trump and see this is coming from a, a, a real place in him. But the, the more substantive point I want to make about it is it was suffused both in terms of the actual things Donald Trump said and then the thing he was doing on a meta level with contempt for 
American democracy. So at the end, there was a section on voting, which I, I'm not really on board with some of the the hate on Chris Wallace. I think that was just a tough job, um, no matter who was going to do it with the president acting that way. But you should not just serve up on a silver platter an opportunity for Donald Trump to delegitimize election results in advance because he will take it. We've seen that many times in the past with him, and we we know it to be true. That's courting a crisis, not giving voters information. But from the end, like going backwards, with Donald Trump saying very clearly he will not necessarily accept the results of the election, saying very clearly, although not by making a clear point that he does not think mail-in voting is legitimate. And if he loses because of mail-in ballots, which would be a very normal way to lose an election, particularly during a nationwide viral pandemic, uh, he will not accept that loss. Then just going backwards through the entire thing, just constantly lying about everything during a debate, not standing up there and saying, here are my plans. Like, this is my health care plan. This is Joe Biden's health care plan. And here's why mine is better. Just lying about everything, saying I have a comprehensive health care plan when I don't. That's not just it's not just like a tactic that's actually taking an axe to the fundamental ground, the fundamental like tree uh, upon which elections are hung. You have to be able to like have a debate about what the two candidates are going to do. And Donald Trump over and over and over again just tried to confuse people about what people would do. I mean, there was a moment when Joe Biden was way too cut tough on crime and then he was going to defund the police. You know, Joe Biden, he constantly accused Joe Biden of supporting things he doesn't support. I, I know I've covered politics for two decades now. I know politicians lie and they exaggerate, but this is a difference in kind. And, and Donald Trump, like the constant interruptions, the total unwillingness to let Biden get an answer out, just the, 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 I don't think it was even good strategy. So it's not like what I'm doing here is that I think, you know, Donald Trump won this debate, but he did it unfairly. Donald Trump lost this debate. He looked like a, not just a, crazy person, but I think very importantly, like a bad person, like not somebody you would want to entrust the country to. And he's already quite down in the polls. It's not, I think sometimes people have a like a misleading view of Trump's political magic, but most people did not vote for him in 2016. And even fewer people want to vote for him this time, uh, if you believe the polls. And I think that the if the pollsters have done a lot of work to, to account for errors from 2016. So Trump is down. He needs to win people who currently don't like him. And this was not a performance de designed to do that. But what it was just a performance to do was like light a match um, and like throw it on the gasoline of uh, American politics and American elections because Donald Trump doesn't think he can win. Like he's not here to make a better argument and get elected based on that argument. He's here to try to seize power or retain power by any means necessary. And I think one of the really difficult things to do right now for all of us involved in American politics to say clearly what we saw on that stage tonight and to not let this fall into the normal categories and nomenclature of elections and presidential debates and stratagems and, and so on. Like This was not normal. It was not okay. It was a terrifying, like a genuinely unsettling, terrifying night in American politics, where if you imagine working backwards from a terrible crisis that mounts after the election and you showed, you know, future students a video of this night, they'd be like, yeah, I, I definitely see how that came about. I, I, I'm a little, I will stop talking now, but I am a little beside myself. Like this is a this is a sad place for the country to have fallen to. But but let me get let me get your take on on it in turn. And I want to ask something in particular uh, about it with you, which is when you watch 
Donald Trump up there. When you watch what he is doing and then how Joe Biden is responding, like, how would you describe what that interaction is? Like, how would you describe the ground upon which the two sides are trying to frame this election? So I think that a lot of people who watch this debate will just be puzzled as to what was going on uh, because it was it was weird. Um, but if you had been following the kind of meta conversation around the debate over the previous couple of days, I, I think you can get some understanding of it, right? Which is that the Trump people know that they were losing. Um, they know that debates don't normally lead to large swings, but they sometimes do, right? Like d- debates are on the short list of events that at least could move public opinion. Um, And so they really wanted to make something happen at this debate. And they were pretty clear in their messaging in the week prior to the debate that they did not think that they were going to win a policy argument with Biden. And you can see they didn't try to. They believed, I mean, they've been saying on and off that Joe Biden is suffering from dementia and that he would be relying on some kind of secret hidden earpiece or performance enhancing drug. And I think Trump's, you know, display there where he both completely refused to follow the rules and also repeatedly tried to uh, attack uh, Biden's son, Hunter, you know, including in a very emotional moment when Biden was talking about his late son, Bo, Trump like turned it around with this this attack on, on his other son. And the goal of that was to produce this Joe Biden emotional or mental meltdown. Right. That was like going to be their their knockout blow. And what happens, you know, when you're down, right, is you you make risky bets. And I think they they placed a risky bet there. Right. That this was going to be like uh, like something from a television show. You know what I mean? Where like Trump was going to come up there and he was going to throw punches so fast and furious and Biden would just implode or something. Um, And it didn't happen because their central charge about Biden and his mental acuity is not true. And it's clearly not true. And it's one of these things where you wonder, right, like, who's BSing whom? Like, they've been saying all this stuff about how Biden won't leave his basement. Uh, They've been saying it for months, even though Biden does keep leaving his basement. And it makes you wonder, you know, did somebody believe it? Right. And You know, so on its own terms, I think it's just a tactical gambit that was uh, a little mean-spirited and low-minded, but it didn't work, right? But it's when you put that, because the foundation of it was Trump refusing to follow the rules, which is something that we have seen, not just in a debate context, but in the way Trump conducts himself as president. And where it becomes really disturbing is when you add in the moment when Wallace hands him this this softball, like, will you condemn white supremacist groups? And Trump won't do it. Right. He says, like, the Proud Boys should stand by and watch or something. Um, and then stand later, back and stand by, stand back and stand by. And then he goes into this stuff at the end about how voting by mail is fraud and we can't trust the results. And, you know, terrible things are happening in Philadelphia. And you never know, you know, with Trump, any given thing he says, there's 85 percent chance it's just nonsense. But it leaves you with the 15 percent chance that a president who does not believe he should be concerned constrained by the rules, is going to encourage white supremacist militias to engage in acts of violence to disrupt the voting. 
And like, I don't I don't want to say that's what's going to happen because I'm saying 15 percent, but it's it's way more than zero percent. Like all three of those things happened over the course of the debate. Right. Like Trump made it clear he doesn't think he should have to follow the rules. Trump made it clear that he wants to retain the support of violent white supremacist militia groups. And Trump made it clear that he does not accept the legitimacy of the voting system. And it was bad television, but also really, you know, you don't know. You, you don't know what's going to happen over the next two months two years of American history, but like it could be, it could be really bad. I want to note this because I there, there is this way, and I know this is not what you were saying, but I saw this sentiment out there tonight that this is bad television, debates are useless, like, and, and there's some, I'm somewhat sympathetic to it, but I do want to note that this was revealing television. I mean, this debate was not useful and enlightening in the way they sometimes are, but it wasn't useless either. I mean, it's actually valuable to see the president of the United States acting like that. People have heard me probably make this uh, argument before, but something I think about a lot with Trump is the way we have slid down like Maslow's hierarchy of political needs. And I, I think about covering in 2012 the Romney-Obama debates, right? That's the last time we had an incumbent um, president debating a, a challenger. And, you know, my politics on up, you know, more with Barack Obama's than, than Mitt Romney's. But I remember, I mean, we were you know, writing about the tax plans and, and, and Mitt Romney's a capable guy who like was making a series of arguments about how to run the country and what would bring the economy back faster. And, you know, what should you think about economic uncertainty and the deficit? And like we could like sit around and, and, and debate what the two visions of the two political parties are, which is how political systems are supposed to work. We are in this. It's like we slid so far down that the questions we end up asking are things like, is the president a white supremacist? Does the president mean or even know anything? He says a couple at a couple of moments, Trump kept yelling at Biden to ask why Biden hasn't in his 47 years in public life repeal things Trump did during the three years of his presidency, which was like a weird, like a very weird structure of an argument. Like, why didn't you like in 1986 get rid of my tax cuts that I passed in 2017? But it reflects that Trump isn't making arguments. He's simply saying shit. Um, and like, you know, hoping people can't can't quite keep up. But that's an important, I think, thing to watch happening because like Trump is just saying stuff. Right. So like, can you trust anything the president says? Does he even really know what is coming out of his mouth or what he means by it in the moment? Like what information sources is he using that are either convincing him of things like Biden has dementia or, you know, that all these ballots are being thrown out um, at, at every level here? We have been walled off from hopefully, and I don't just mean ideally, I just mean um, in some semi-reasonable uh, situation, the questions we'd be asking about these candidates in, by the way, a time of not just national crisis, but global crisis, right? Are they good at running the government? Do they have good plans for what to do about the coronavirus? Like, how do they see the way America should deal with the rising power of China? I mean, there are a million things that are, that, you know, what should we do about climate change that are really here? And every couple of minutes, um, Trump would shut up for a minute and Biden would like open a window to a parallel universe where they were having a normal debate and talk about his climate plan for 62 seconds and then Trump would get back in the game. But we're really low down here. I mean, the things we're having to ask, will the president of the United States accept an election in which he loses? Will he potentially, is he sending messages that either are meant to be or are simply interpretable 
by right-wing uh, white supremacist militias to try to disrupt the like those the fact that we are reasonably and I do want to stress I think we are reasonably asking these questions interpreting his performance in that way the fact that Trump just lies through his teeth says he doesn't he has a comprehensive healthcare plan when he doesn't says Roe v Wade isn't on the ballot when of course like that is like literally what is happening here is Trump is appointing somebody to the court who opposed as far as we know opposes the Roe decision and if they strike that decision down as a 6-3 conservative majority or a 5-4 if they, you know, if they lose Roberts or something. And then that goes to the states, of course, or the, the federal government. That, of course, is on the like it's, of course, on the ballot. Like that's part of what this election is actually about. That level of lying, that level of defiance of the truth, what um, Masha Gessen likes to call the bully lie, the, the lie that is not about being fact checked. The lie is about showing that you have the power to say anything you want to say. It is a dangerous space for American politics, but that, that puts it too, too, too lightly in a way. It is a um, mind-bending space for American politics because what it basically does is use the norms and language and pageantry of our elections and our political system against itself. It becomes hard sometimes to see what is going on. But there are a lot of ways in which I didn't think Biden's performance was amazing. He like, you know, and some things I wish he wouldn't say. And, you, you know, like I, I think Trump more lost his debate than Biden won it. But we don't even get to sort of have some of the some of those conversations because we are stuck in this like the country is run by bigoted lunatic situation who's like lying constantly and threatening to to violence if, if he loses the election. And our, I don't really think our political structures are up to the challenge of that. I will say is one more point on this. One thing that was really telling but would not be obvious to, to everybody tuning in. This was Chris Wallace moderating. I mean, Chris Wallace is the serious journalist on Fox News, and I, I respect him as a journalist. I think he's done good interviews and, and, and good work and is just a more conservative guy than I am. But he's on Fox News, right? He is a he's fundamentally like a, a sympathetic player um, within the context of American politics to Donald Trump and the Republican Party. He's from a network that has really tried to bend the knee to Donald Trump and, and Trump's Republican Party. And like by the like, Don, like Chris Wallace does not want to get into a fight with Donald Trump at all. By the end of the night, he was just like he was furious. You could just watch him. And that just in a way that was also a helpful telling moment. Right. It's not just that like Donald Trump is there annoying liberals like Donald Trump is there enraging Chris Wallace of Fox News. So the Chris Wallace ends up yelling at him. Um, and I saw people wishing like Chris Wallace would somehow cut his mic, which he could and have the power to do or, or you know, not sometimes say gentlemen when he meant Donald Trump. But at some point, he was very clear, like he said to Trump, you're the one doing all the interrupting and making this so we can't have a debate. And it was. Like, if you just take Chris Wallace as somehow like a control group that you could watch the reaction against, it was helpful to see like how how like they got the right wing guy to moderate the first debate and they couldn't even hold him. Like by the end of it, he just couldn't stand Donald Trump either. But here. So here's here's my question for you is that, you know, I, I watch some of these things that play out. Right. And so the Chris Wallace thing is a great example because Chris Wallace is, you know, I, more conservative than most journalists. Um, and, and so I, he, he gets along with the other people on Fox. And, you know, you saw he had very conservative framing, right? Like to have a like race and the violence in our cities topic is like how conservatives think about these things. But he's a real professional journalist. And so clearly what happened was, was that like he, he takes pride in his work. Right. He wanted to be the moderator of what is remembered as one of the great 
presidential debates of all time. And instead, I don't really think it's his fault. But the fact is, like, he was the moderator of a shit show. And so he doesn't like that. Like, I've moderated panels. I'm sure you have, too. And sometimes they go bad. And, like, it doesn't make you happy as, as a moderator. So he's he's upset at Trump. But the whole essence of Trump's presidency is that the people who matter in the conservative movement don't have that reaction to Trump, right? So like when Trump accuses Biden of being too tough on crime, or when Trump claims that Roe v. Wade isn't on the ballot, like he doesn't get blowback from his base, right? And if Biden or anyone, if any Democrat just like got up and pretended to actually have the opposite position on the major issues of the day that they have, like progressives would get upset, right? Like if if Joe Biden denied that he supports Roe v. Wade to try to gain some tactical advantage or just out of confusion, like Planned Parenthood and NARAL would be losing their shit. And the conservative coalition seems to me to have to be different in the level that like they look at all this maniacal behavior from Trump and they don't necessarily love it, but they feel confident, right? That like he's their guy, that they want him to win, that they spend money on it, that they, you know, shield him from congressional investigations, all this kind of stuff. And and I wonder, you know, as the sort of polarization guy, like what do you make of that? Like, what gives the right in America so much confidence that like more of this is really what they want? So I wouldn't frame it as confidence. So I had uh, Lee Drutman on the show on the Ezra Klein show the other day, and he's the author of a great book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, uh, I think it is. But it's about the ways in which America's two-party political system and our like fundamental voting structures, which create it, create a situation in which polarization gets much, much, much worse. And and one of the, the reasons it is, and, and I know, Matt, you've done a lot of writing on proportional representation, but one of the reasons is that with only two parties, everything becomes zero sum. And people, particularly when the parties become ideologically sorted the way they have and demographically sorted the way they have, there's nowhere for them to go. So I, I do a lot of reporting with Republicans, and I think a lot of them do not want Donald Trump running the party. I think a lot of them wish any number of other people were doing it, from Mike Pence to Marco Rubio to Ted Cruz to Josh. I mean, you got all, all kinds of folks there. There are some who love him. I mean, there's no doubt about that either. But but there are a lot who don't and who might have looked at this or any of a number of things that have happened over the past couple of years in another political system and said, huh, I don't like this guy at all. I don't want to be part of this. I don't want this to be my legacy. So I'm jumping over to the other right-wing party, which is run by the other right-wing person. And if we win, maybe we'll end up in coalition with the Republicans. But it doesn't mean that if we, uh, like, if I leave, Joe Biden gets to, you know, it won't literally be because they'll, they'll jam Amy Coney Barrett through quicker than that. But but Joe Biden gets to replace Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. So the thing that holds people in place isn't positive partisanship towards Donald Trump. I mean, that's that's the let's call it the 20 or 30 percent um, of Americans he absolutely cannot lose because they, they, they actually really like him. But it's that other group who would prefer somebody else to, to support. And they don't have that 
person because the political incentives of a two-party system don't give it to them. Now, there's other things going on here, too. Um, if primaries were still run by party elites, Donald Trump would never have gotten the leadership of the Republican Party in the first place. I mean, he had a sort of unusual path through the primaries that would not have been even possible a couple of decades ago. Uh, and you know, I got other views on this. You know, Trump delivers for for them, like on Barrett, where it matters uh, in, in some key cases, gave them tax cuts. But him himself, like, a lot of them don't like, including, by the way, a lot of people who work for him in the White House. But Joe Biden had an interesting moment at the debate where Trump was badgering him about something. And Biden says, I am the Democratic Party now. I am the leader of the Democratic Party. And on some level, that's obviously an oversimplification of it. Parties are complex structures, but and like there are things Biden could do that he would not be able to get away with. But on another level, it's actually kind of true. Um, and you see it in the number of Democrats who do not like Joe Biden, really, who wanted Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Julian Castro or somebody else and have gotten on board with with Biden because they don't really have another choice. Donald Trump, because he won the primaries, he is the Republican Party. And so if you are a Republican, you end up with him, like whether or not you like it, he makes some rhetorical moves. But one of the things that I do think separates him from others, and I think maybe this goes to, to this other point you're making, Matt, is that if Joe Biden came out and said he doesn't support Roe v. Wade, people would listen to that and be like, oh, no, Joe Biden doesn't support Roe v. Wade, which, by the way, is a, a view he held earlier in his career. Um, if Donald Trump comes out and says, I have a comprehensive healthcare plan to give every American health insurance guaranteed by the government. Like no Republican thinks he does or will try to do anything like that. And so that that ability to not really listen to what he says is a I think also a key a key dynamic of it. Yeah, I mean it's just it's part of what makes these things so shapeless. Like I thought Biden had a strong moment you know, when Trump was was yelling about Hunter at some point, and he did one of his like, look direct to the camera things. And he says, like, Trump doesn't want to talk about you, you know. Um, and then like, if Biden was getting like an A instead of a B plus debate, he would have then really quickly rattled off like 11 things that Joe Biden wants to do for you. Uh, but but he didn't, right? So he was never able to quite turn the debate to the fact that like, he has ideas and Trump's things are fake, right? So I think that Trump being so weird on policy was helpful to him in 2016. Um, a lot of people like, uh, you know, college educated Trump hating people can't believe this, but Trump was perceived as the most moderate major presidential uh, nominee in a generation by the electorate. Because he was seen as this kind of heterodox guy who broke with Republican orthodoxy and a lot of important things. And he still has that manner, right, as he kind of rambles and claims to have a plan for pre-existing conditions and a million other things. But now he's kind of stuck with his record, which people don't like already. And, you know, like words can only go so far in terms of actually changing anyone's impressions of anything. So, but it's just still, I mean, you were talking about Mitt Romney, right? And I mean, I think, <laughs> I think Romney made a tactical error in being so specific and like, come on the weeds and debate your tax plan. Uh, because the basic fact of the matter is, is that sort of 
free market economics-y ideas are not very popular, and so it's better to, to skate past them. But from a journalistic standpoint, it was just such a pleasure to cover the 2012 campaign where you could dissect, like, does this proposal make sense? Like, is this thing Romney or Obama said about the other one true? Where does it go? Um, Biden, you know, if, if you had to if you had to judge him in isolation, it was like, I think he misdescribed how the public option is health plan works. It was totally unclear to me what he was saying about the Green New Deal. Like, it's actually very unimpressive. But compared to Trump, who just lied and and menaced people, it's like, you know, it's it's, it's Biden in a landslide to me. But it, it makes me wonder, like, what what do we contribute as journalists to one's understanding of this like like what are we what are we doing here oh let's take a break because i do want to come back and talk about that support for this podcast comes from planned parenthood your body is your own that's why planned parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care today lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging planned parenthood Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So I I am really myself struggling with this question. Like what I want to sit here and do is bang out on my keyboard like the most angry, despairing piece about Donald Trump. And it's very likely that I will do that. And also, I don't really think it helps. I mean, nobody is wondering what I think about Donald Trump at this point. And I'm not sure that adding one more take on this to the unbelievable like pile of takes on this is is, is going to be valuable. So maybe you, you want to pivot away from it. And at the same time, um, there is this like very fundamental question when you're this deep in a, in, in, in a campaign about I mean, the presidential campaign is important. Like the thing Donald Trump always traps you in with the way he approaches things is in this very lethal choice 
between playing into politics as he constructs it and then a kind of apathy that or cynicism that is also potentially lethal to politics, right? So on the one hand, you can become the opposition media that he claims you are because uh, like any reasonable media would cover him extraordinarily negatively as in fact happens. And, and then he complains about it from the stage, making the media the opposition party to him. And on the other hand, if you say, well, I'm going to ignore Donald Trump, I'm going to like try to cover things that are just undercovered and ignore, I guess, a presidential debate where the president threatens that there's going to be election violence if he's not re-elected, uh, that also creates space for him to take over American politics from that perspective. One of the just like truths is that in a two-party system, if one of the parties becomes deranged, you're out of good choices very quickly. It isn't like there are good options. People want there to be some kind of answer to hard problems, and sometimes there isn't. Um, you know, you can say go vote a lot, but that doesn't like that's not that interesting of a, a of a way to do it. And so, I, I think these things present the media with a very hard choice. The nice thing about debates is that I think they're a little bit less like that than, than other moments because at least people are tuning in. Although I wonder how many people truly made it through that one. It was quite difficult to watch, and. They're tuning in, so maybe there is space for 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 sense making and, and, and construction. The other side of this is that I do think it's at least worth trying to shine a little bit of light on on Biden's performance, which is I don't mean performance because I think it's actually I think he did a reasonably good job under like constant hectoring. It's very hard to have a normal debate, and he ended up I think you could watch him. He came into the debate. And you could see in like the way he was talking, the way he was smiling, that just as Trump's people prepared Donald Trump to be like angry, hectoring, knock Biden off his game, be super aggressive, dominate from the first moment, Biden's people prepared him to like be friendly, be somebody the American people would like, like sort of be light in the way that Donald Trump can can often act dark. Um, but Trump throws him off that pretty quickly, and Biden actually does readjust reasonably well on the fly. Simultaneously, he keeps his cool, becomes much more direct. I think my favorite of the Biden lines was. Oh, just shush already. Uh, but he's a bunch like that. He's like, would you just shut up? He stops, like he stops calling the, you know, Trump Mr. President. He comes like this, this man, this man becomes his moniker for Trump. There's a lot of little things in the debate where Biden begins calling a spade a spade. He calls Trump racist on the stage, which, you know, I was actually not expecting going into, into the debate. But the other thing about it that I think is interesting is that Biden really was not able to make a, a clear positive case for his agenda. He's not a super clear version of that anyway. And the truth is that if you like talk to Biden people about why he's running, it's much more the soul of the nation kind of thing than it is that Biden has like three plans. He's unbelievably committed to passing. But to the extent there was a, a, a real weakness, and I'm I'm not really sure how it could have been so otherwise. I mean, I think if Elizabeth Warren had been across the stage, she would have been more effective at this. But it was also just hard with Trump interrupting constantly. But I do think the, the real weakness Biden here was that he had trouble saying crisply what it is Donald Trump has done and then what it is he would do differently. I mean, in part because Trump was constantly lying about what he had done and then lying about what Biden would do while Biden was speaking. So it's just very hard to for anybody to finish a thought. But but that was a like a I don't call it a missed opportunity for Biden exactly, because again, I'm not sure. I think it would have been very hard to do this well under those circumstances, but it's a missed opportunity in the election. Um, and it's a missed opportunity for voters to hear what is being thought of and promised to them. And I'll just say it's like a final thing. Biden very notably was asked about core packing and the filibuster. And I was really struck that he simply refused to answer. 
This is a pretty important and it was an on point question by Chris Wallace, where he said, like, will you just say to the American people, like, would you support getting rid of the filibuster or, or adding justice to the court? And Biden says no, because then my answer will become the story, which I actually think in another context, like <laughs> without Donald Trump acting like a loon six feet away, uh, that would have been a real story, actually. Like, what, what, like, yes, of course, your answer will become the story. You're running for president and your positions on things are very meaningful. But that is also a move for Joe Biden, who I think at another, there are lots of things Joe Biden disavowed in that debate. He disavowed defunding the police. He disavowed supporting the Green New Deal. He disavowed getting rid of private health insurance. And he notably and very, very specifically did not disavow getting rid of the filibuster and, and adding justice to the court, which the more I think about it was the more like in many ways, his most important and surprising answer of the night. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. It's... <sighs> I mean, it's hard to know what to make of Biden, I think, as we've talked about a number of times, right? I mean, he's he's not just old, which he is, but like he's from another era of American politics that makes him good at politics on one level. He comes from a time when there was much more elasticity in the electorate and where what you said and did had a much bigger impact on voting. And so he won elections in Delaware in uh the 1972 cycle, the 1978 cycle, and the 1984 cycle. And those were two years that the Republican presidential candidate carried Delaware hard handily, and then a terrible midterms for, for Democrats. And, and Biden, like, did it, like, real politics. And he has a good job of, like, hewing to popular stances. He's not afraid. You know, Trump kept saying like, oh, you'll never disavow this popular, unpopular left wing thing because then, you know, like the left owns you. But like the left doesn't own Biden. He he won the primary. He's very comfortable. He he knows what he wants to say. It's It's all really solid. But it does make me wonder, like, how ready is he for a politics in which post-Trump like things are different, but they're not that different, you know, and I don't feel like he he doesn't articulate really what the conflict in American politics is about. It seems to me he's good at doing sort of takes about Donald Trump that sort of shape people's people's view of, of the narrow situation. But the, everything you were recounting before about polarization, right, the things that make conservatives line up behind Trump, Biden doesn't quite express like what those are, like what the what the social forces in conflict are and what it is he would conceivably do in this post filibuster world or this court packing world. Like what like like what's Biden all about? What is the transformation that conservatives fear that makes them willing to do all this illegal stuff to try to bring him down? It's something I always liked about both Warren and Bernie is that they seem to me to have a very clear diagnosis of like what's what's going on in America. And so many other Democrats, including Biden, I feel like they get they get fuzzy in it, you know, or they will make it out to be that other leaders in the Republican Party are somehow being cowardly, 
right? That like they're they're just like afraid to stand up to Trump and and do the right thing. When I think the truth, you know, is as you've explained, and you know, people can explain it in more pejorative ways or or kinder ways, but like one way or another, it's like there's people out there who like they really want abortion to be illegal. They really want the corporate tax rate to be low. They really don't want there to be regulation of pollution. This is why the machine works. It's like it's not just this one clown up there on stage. And I just don't know. Like, I can't. The the um, the court thing was like the clearest example where Biden was just out there saying, like, listen, I'm hiding the ball on this one. What did, what did you think of his answer? Because I think it's I think this goes right to the heart of your question. So Trump, like, threw him this ball, right? Like what Trump thinks this election is about and what American politics is about is like the demographic hordes coming for the aging white majority's power. And so he says to, to, to Biden in the, the, the race and, and, and protesting side, he had this one line, he was like, what is a peaceful protest anyway? And it's like, well, um, he says to Biden, you won't even say law and order. And then Biden has this answer where he says, of course, we'll say law and order, law and order with justice and equality. What did you think of that answer? I mean, that seemed good to me. That seemed like a good, a good kind of answer. Although, again, it- it felt to me like a missed opportunity to mention like that Donald Trump seems to be doing tax fraud. Yeah, sure. And that and that all this kind of stuff is going. But I mean, not just in the sense of like it would have been a good zinger. Right. But it's like the construction of law and order, particularly in the Trump era. Like it. Yes. It, it Like it has a racial dog whistle element to it, but it also just has an element of real falseness to it, right? Like white collar criminal prosecutions have dropped to the lowest level on record. There was a hilarious story. This was right before the pandemic, but it was like white shoe law firms were like sending these letters out to their corporate clients, like begging them not to drop them, you know, and like saying like, oh no, like you may think you don't need us on retainer anymore because Trump isn't prosecuting anyone for anything, but like he's not going to be in the office forever. Like you still need a good lawyer. And to me, that's such a telling thing about like what's actually happening in America and why at the kind of higher points for Trump, you know, it's like, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, did this like totally embarrassing dog and pony show with the president a few months ago where he went to a factory that Apple's been running in Texas for years. And Trump was like, see, they just opened up this factory because of my tax bill. And Cook is up there and he's like, yeah, that's right, Mr. President. And like, well, why would you do that? Right. And like the reason you would do it is like unfathomable sums of money have flowed directly into Tim Cook's pocket because of Donald Trump's tax bill. And like, I don't even think Tim Cook likes Donald Trump, but like so much more money he has made directly only because Donald Trump is president than the average American will ever see in their life. And like that weighs so heavily on the world. Let let, let me try an argument out about this because this goes to to this question of polarization. Um, Donald Trump has what I would call an inversion of the normal rhetorical substance relationship where he tends to state like the rhetoric of his presidency incredibly aggressively. Uh, Everything from like what he says about protesters and riots and white supremacists, like all the way down to what he says about his healthcare plan or trade or anything else. And then compared to the rhetoric that he plays around with, 
he runs a very he runs a much more modest actual executive branch because he's not really that interested in it, and he's checked by a lot of other um, you know branches and, and, and powers. So, like on the one hand, Donald Trump like runs this very aggressive presidency, and on the other hand, there's like it's a lot of sound and fury signifying not no agenda because there are a lot of people out there, but actually a sort of weirdly for the most part normalized agenda of like letting corporations like dump pollution into rivers. Yeah, he appoints judges, right? He likes to talk about that. But it's like everybody appoints judges. And on the other hand, I think that Joe Biden might be I think the question with Joe Biden is whether he is doing the reverse, right? What Biden tends to do is he wants to frame the question of American politics as narrowly around Donald Trump, not these like much bigger questions that we were talking about a moment ago. But like, do you, do you think this guy, this kind of mean, nasty guy? This liar over here, like this, this crazy person, like, does he represent you? Is he who you want as president? Like, if not, like, come to me, Joe Biden. He doesn't want to, like, frame the very sort of sharp fights over, say, like, socialism versus capitalism that you would hear from from more of a Bernie Sanders. And at the same time, and I've written about this and, and, and others have remarked on it, he's begun to develop in the background of that a much more ambitious agenda. Like Joe Biden's rhetoric sounds sort of like pretty moderate, although obviously he's moved with the Democratic Party in recent years. But even within the Democratic Party, it, it's more moderate. And on the other hand, you can really begin to see the outlines, particularly given where a lot of Senate and, and House Democrats have been moving of it's entirely possible that Joe Biden will deny that we are a divided country. And at the same time, like run a much more ambitious play, right? Barack Obama did not try to get rid of the filibuster when he was president. He did not try to lead Senate Democrats in that effort, where it seems increasingly to me that there's a a very good chance that happens under under Democrats with Biden. And right now, which is when you would expect Biden to say, absolutely not, that's ridiculous, even if it might happen later, he doesn't. So I, I sometimes wonder whether or not Biden, who is simultaneously a rhetorically cautious and then pretty substantively pragmatic politician, given what a pragmatic politician would actually do right now, is cloaking a much more ambitious agenda and a much more potentially ambitious approach behind this, you know, slightly fumbling, much chiller, calmer approach to rhetorical approach to politics. There's a a while ago, um, Donald Trump's campaign released an ad and it was this very ridiculously photoshopped thing. It was a clip, I think, of an old movie of the Trojan battles and so they had the Trojan horse going into it going in and then they like photoshopped like I think it was Biden's face on the horse. But then the the, the soldiers coming out of the horse were, you know, Bernie Sanders and AOC uh-huh. and Ilan Omar <laughs> and so on. And everybody laughed at them because like this looked like a, like a seventh grader had done it. But I actually thought there's a little bit of a point to it. It's not literally the Bernie Sanders AOC agenda. Biden does not support their agenda. But it's something much more ambitious and aggressive that like even a Michael Bennett is on now than like John Tester was just asked by the National Review if he supports ending the filibuster, which he's been completely unequivocal on at other times. And he basically said, I don't want to end the filibuster. But, you know, we got to see what the other side does, which is a big actual rhetorical move for him. And so I do think there's this way in which it's very easy to see what Donald Trump is doing, which is like he frames like the fights of American politics incredibly, incredibly clearly. And then behind that, um, like his administration is just much more of a mess. And then on the other side, I think it's a little bit more unclear. Like there's one version of a Biden presidency where 
he tries to spend a lot of time negotiating and having drinks with Mitch McConnell and nothing comes of it. And he's a totally feckless president. There's another version where he comes in, tries to have a drink with Mitch McConnell. It's like, well, that didn't work out. And, it, you know, like Senate Democrats, if they had won the majority in this scenario, get rid of the filibuster and begin passing their agenda and end up having a much more aggressive presidency than Obama did or Bill Clinton did or, or a lot of recent Democrats have even tried to. And one of the tricky things about Biden is at this point, it is impossible to tell the two apart. And for Biden, I think it matters a lot where like the center of his party ends up being, but they've moved a lot too. And so there's just a, there's a weirdness going on there that it's it's hard to like keep your eye on given like the fireworks of Donald Trump, but it's pretty consequential like what like what Biden's true take on this is or much maybe more to the point, what he will do under duress. If Biden tries to make a deal and he can't, does he just try again? Or does he get his back up and say, well, I tried, like, and I'm a reasonable guy. And so if you can't make a deal with me, you're not going to make a deal. So I guess we're going the other way now. I mean, this was essentially my take on the Hillary Clinton presidency, uh, which of course did not happen. Uh, but, but I was, I was, I was ready to report on it. I was ready to report on the, on the transition. And, you know, my basic view was that she is affiliated with the moderate wing of the Democratic party, that she ran a campaign that downplayed like policy issues in favor of a very sort of character-centric campaign. She courted these endorsements from all these Bushies and, and other kinds of people. But now she was prepared to enact, I, th I think Dylan Matthews and I, you know, called it like Hillary Clinton's quiet revolution, uh, an allusion to our shared favorite episode in the politics of Quebec, uh, of course, very well known to everybody out there in, in listener world. And the thing about that, though, is that Hillary is well known as a detail oriented, policy oriented person, right? So even though she wasn't running a campaign that had a lot of overt message focus on policy, an incredible amount of work was going in behind the scenes to developing her policy ideas. Her people were, I think, actually to a fault, like obsessed with kind of kicking the tires on their specific proposals, making sure that things were like costed out in the right way, that they were ready to go for the CBO. Uh, her, her transition team had gotten to a quite elaborate state in terms of their plan to sort of take over the government and, and go get things done. And, you know, I had an article that was ready to go about how Hillary Clinton was actually like a pretty crappy presidential nominee. Um, she had herself alluded on various occasions to her unsuitability for the actual task at hand, uh, but that she was really well prepared to do the part of the job of the president where like you're actually president, uh, was very well organized, had these like great teams, had big, big things going on. And Biden, I just don't know. Like I literally, you know, I've been in DC for like forever now. And I, I didn't know Biden as well as I knew almost any of the other people who were in the Democratic field in 2020. And he has not engaged a ton with the press over the course of this campaign. His policy operation has often felt a little bit um, of an afterthought in a campaign that, you know, not just like their message wasn't really about policy, but like actually their campaign was not really about policy. It was about electability. It was about nostalgia for Obama. Now it's about um, his tremendous empathy, right? I mean, he really demonstrates that like Donald Trump on an emotional and intellectual level 
doesn't take the pandemic seriously. Whereas Joe Biden has suffered loss, is in touch with other people, cares a lot about you. He's like dug in on this. So then it just it just makes me not no, like if he was somebody else, I might think, okay, there is definitely like a master plan at work behind this. As it is, like I'm left a little confused. Like, you know, you'll be going along like, okay, this is great. Like Biden's moving left. Democrats are moving left. They're getting serious. And then like Ted Kaufman, you know, a few weeks ago was like, well, Trump just left the cupboard bare with his big deficits. So like, we can't really do anything. And, you know, I looked at that and like a bunch of progressives yelled at him. And so then the campaign was like, no, 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 of course we don't mean that. Uh, but who knows? Like Ted Kaufman's a million years old. So is Biden. Who even knows who he listens to on any of these topics uh, versus who's who's in the campaign? And like, I, I, I'm just torn between, okay, this is going to be the greatest surprise where actually the Biden administration breaks all kinds of barriers on policy that Obama never could. And the worry that, you know, he's going to beat Trump and people are going to feel really good about that. And then he's going to be completely overmatched by relentless partisan warfare that will be conducted by people who are not really any more principled than Trump, but who are more disciplined. Because you know, even just like he did a good job of like parrying the kind of attacks on Hunter, but he didn't have a substantively good answer to those attacks. You know what I mean? It was it was actually just like good debating and like turning of the question to other things and Trump being such a kind of maniac up there. But like I could just imagine him being dogged by investigations forever that like he and his people are not going to stonewall the way Trump would. And we're going to be sitting around and we'll be like, how did we just go through four years of a president just like stealing everything that wasn't nailed down with no oversight hearings? But the Biden administration is twisted into knots constantly about some meeting that happened 10 years ago with the mayor of Moscow. And like, I don't I, I just, I don't, I've never fundamentally developed that kind of like supreme confidence in Biden's operation as a, as a governing entity. Um, every week that goes by that he's still beating Trump badly, I like, I, I guess I have to raise my estimation of them. They're obviously doing a lot right, but like, I don't know, what's your, like, what's, what's your take? Like, do, do, do you feel like you, you know, Joe Biden? Let's take a break and then I'll, I'll tell you if I know Joe. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So a bit like you, I've had the experience of, I know a lot of the folks running for president, I've I've been on calls and stuff with Joe Biden. I don't feel that he is as predictable as other presidents, but I feel like it has taken me some time, but I actually feel like I have an understanding of him, which he's a, he's a party politician. And so I think looking for a Joe Biden core is a mistake. 
And usually when people hear that in politics, they, 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 they think something very specific because we fetishize authenticity in American politics and, and sincerity. It's like, well, like there's this old line from Bill Clinton, like people vote for somebody strong and wrong over somebody weak and right. Um, and, and Joe Biden like likes to like sound strong when he says stuff. Uh, but Joe Biden flips around a lot. And he flips around because he's a politician who thinks actually an important part of American politics is figuring out where the voters are and where your party is and where like the zone of agreement where you can get something done is and being there. And so Biden, and this is actually something I think is true about Kamala Harris too. We talked about this in, in the episode after she was uh, named vice president. It, like Biden believes in politics. And so I don't think the right question to ask with Joe Biden is where is Joe Biden on the deficit? I've asked people on the campaign that and what I have heard is three days a week, Joe Biden wakes up thinking he needs to be FDR and three days a week, Joe Biden wakes up worrying about the deficit and the seventh day, nobody quite knows it changes week to week and it depends on what's going on. And so the question of what do like key members of the Democratic Party, like what does the House Ways and Means chairman think about the deficit, which in this case is Richard Neal, and he worries a lot about the deficit. And I think it's somebody who progressives should worry a little bit about uh, how much power he has over progressive priorities. And on the other hand, in in the Senate, uh, I think Ron Wyden, who I think also cares about deficits, but he's going to he's in line to become finance chair if they take back the Senate. And I think he's moved a lot over the years and his his agenda has gotten a lot more ambitious. And he, along with Bennett, is responsible for that $600 UI boost. It helped a ton of people. And so I think these things really matter. Like where these kinds of players are is really going to have a lot to do with where Joe Biden is. They're going to try to figure out what is possible. And what is possible is going to like Joe Biden he pings what is possible by like one where he thinks the electorate is, which as you say, given how he's performed so far, he's had a pretty good read on it. And then secondarily, um, where his own party is, where I, which I think he understands is going to be the key, the key negotiating structure. So like, that's one thing, but I do want to say one other thing, uh, bef before we like hit the end is, which is, I want to talk about some of the people not on the stage, which is, I do not want to let this episode pass by and not say that Every Republican politician and like party elite in that broad definition watching Donald Trump week after week, month after month, year after year, watching him not uh, condemn white supremacy on that stage, watching him just act nuts on that stage, watching him lie constantly on that stage, watching him mislead the American people on that stage, watching him... Uh, suggest uh, over and over and over again during this election that he would not abide by the results. So a bunch of them recently did release statements saying in different ways, like, no, there will be an election on election day. And then like somebody will win that election and they will take office in one of these. Like they didn't name Donald Trump as a person they were smacking down there, but they were kind of maybe smacking him down. Like they are the ones who are responsible. And you could watch Chris Wallace there again as this sort of Republican control group. Like, you know, perfectly well, Chris Wallace, like if he votes, voted for Mitt Romney over Barack Obama. Like, you know perfectly well, Chris Wallace like voted for John McCain over Barack Obama. Like, Chris Wallace is a Republican. He's a conservative guy. Like, that's why he's on Fox News. And you can watch him just, like, the disgust with how Donald Trump was acting was radiating off of him. Like, I don't think Chris Wallace is going to walk into a ballot box and, like, vote for Donald Trump. Meanwhile, on Twitter, Laura Ingram, Chris Wallace's colleague on Fox News, is saying, oh, so Joe Biden just gets to interrupt with impunity. I mean, it's like the most ridiculous thing you could ever imagine. Like, uh, like 
it's not that Joe Biden never interrupted, but what, a tenth, a twentieth, a hundredth the way uh, Donald Trump was? And Wallace at some point had to call that out. He's like, you guys, like, we need to stop this, Mr. President. Mr. Pre and Trump said, like, well, Biden, well, he's interrupting too. And, and Wallace, like, did, clearly did not want to be in this position. He said, yeah, but a lot less than you are, sir. And so usually you and I argue different, the opposite versions of this. And I'm the structuralist and you, you always make the point correctly that people have moral responsibilities. But we are in this mess in American politics because the Republican Party, in fact, is full of craven cowards who have been willing to make a devil's bargain over and over and over again. And like I have written a thousand times on what the logic of that bargain is, and it doesn't make it not a devil's bargain. Like it doesn't make them not culpable in something horrible and in something dangerous. And like maybe they all skate through it. Maybe what happens is that Donald Trump just botches this enough with hundreds of thousands of Americans dead from the coronavirus and a million other disasters in his wake that he loses Florida and Ohio early in the night on election night. And that's that. Like, there's no room for him to contest the election. And so in the end, they supported him. They got their judges. They got their tax cuts. He's gone. Joe Biden's in. And they get to say, you know what? Like, net, net, like, kind of glad I did that. And like nothing goes down um, and like they're never called to account for what they did. And maybe like maybe this story goes in a much darker direction. And like maybe, maybe you really do have murders from the Proud Boys like in the aftermath of the election. And we know what this looks like. Like we have seen this in dozens, hundreds of other countries across history. Like this has been warned, you know, like you can go back to our founding documents, all these people claim to revere the founders and claim to read the Federalist Papers and the warnings against demagogues were pretty clear and like what the Electoral College was for was pretty clear. And all these Republican elites who will watch this and be like, oh, I didn't really get to see the debate yet, so I don't have a comment on it. Or, you know, the president says a lot of stuff, but you look at his record on judges and, and it's disgusting. And there is at some point, at like some base level, like there needs to be some loyalty to the American experiment where you're willing to take the hit. I mean, parties, you know, there there were ways the party could have dumped Trump, but of course they didn't feel like they had the power to do that and probably didn't have the votes to do that. But but at some point you just you can't it can't all be worth leveraging. And like I just I get why people do it and I get why these decisions are hard to make and I get you don't want to lose your elections and I get it. Like I do. Um like I, I see I see the bargain. And they should hang their fucking heads in shame. Because that man should not be on the stage and there should be no chance he is president in 2021 and he should not be president now. And it is their endless enabling of him that makes it so he is and so he might be in the future. And that has left America unprotected from this. And like whatever happens here, like I think that is like the key thing. Like we are unprotected. You can see how easily this could flip. You could see how easily like this could all go up in flames. And the reason is, is that we don't think of our structure because it's not our constitution as political parties, but political parties are the key actors at this point in our political structure. And if they are not both going to be responsible, then there is a massive, massive failure mode built into the American political system. And like the road to it is right through the Republican Party now. And like they are all there on the bus cheering when they need to be and silent when they need to be actually standing up. And it's just it's disgusting. Like it is like disgusting. I thought the um, 
excerpt of the uh, so so Peter Baker and Susan Glasser have this new biography out about uh, James Baker, who was one of the most important figures in, in Republican Party politics over the years. He was Treasury Secretary and then Secretary of State and George H.W. Bush's campaign manager twice. And he was the sort of architect of the Bush v. Gore legal strategy that was successful. Um, three Supreme Court justices are going to be veterans of the legal team that he assembled there. So he's really like at the at the core of, of the Republican Party, but also kind of an old school, you know, diplomat kind of person. And th- they go through in their article, you know, like Baker tried to advise Trump. He tried to offer his services as a guy who has worked for a lot of Republican presidents in a lot of capacities and explained to him why it would be useful to actually cooperate with Democrats occasionally. You know, not in a like high-minded, I'm bipartisan kind of way, but, you know, in just like, that's how you do politics and try to explain to him about alliances and international stuff. And, you know, Trump totally blows him off and he's totally disgusted. He calls him like an idiot. He calls him crazy. Um, And then at the end of the article, like, Baker tells them that he's going to vote for him, you know, and like he's not a guy who's been duped by Fox News like he and Democrats didn't give people like him. I think a lot of people like him really wanted Democrats to nominate Bernie Sanders because that would give them the excuse that they were looking for, right, that Trump was this bulwark against socialism. And that was taken away from them by Democrats nominating Biden, who everybody knows to be a a pillar of the Washington establishment, a critic of the left wing of the Democratic Party. And so they now have no reason that they can really offer as to like why it's worth running, call it a 10% chance that like American democracy is completely pulverized by by Trump over opposition to Biden. They they have nothing to say for themselves. And yet they're really out there. You know, not just look, people are in tough electoral positions, but you know, uh Pat Roberts, Lamar Alexander, Mike Enzi are all retiring from the Senate at the end of this year. They're all prosperous men. They are all in their late 70s or early 80s. They don't really need another job. They could have teamed up with Mitt Romney on the couple of times when Romney has taken a stand against Trump. And so if that was four senators rather than just three, right, that would also encourage Lisa Murkowski, who likes to go rogue, uh, to do something like that. And then that might give cover to someone like Cory Gardner or Kristen Sinema, who are right now going to lose their Senate seats um, to put some distance between themselves and Trump. And we could be in a totally different world then, right? In which Trump is facing meaningful intra-party criticism, not about like his circuit court judicial picks, but about his general conduct as as president. And I don't think he would change in response to a sort of tough brushback by inside the party, but he at least might. You know, like we don't really know. Um, most people are capable of responding to incentives and things like that. And For years now, Republicans in Congress have just created the incentive structure where they know in their hearts that they're not going to stand up to Trump on almost anything if Trump really pushes it. That they they move around the edges, and so sometimes his goofier nominees will get killed and stuff like that. But like they just fold, and Trump knows that they'll fold, and they know that they'll fold, and it's 
that's really what's put us in this incredibly dangerous position where, I mean, I I think Trump is just going to lose by a large enough margin that it doesn't matter. At least like that's the most likely outcome. But there's just a wide range of possibilities out here. And there's a lot of people who are, you know, they're just they're failing in their roles as statesmen. And there's just such an unacceptably high chance that we're going to look back on this or, or somebody will look back on it and be like, yep, there was the debate where the president said he wanted the Proud Boys to stand back and and wait for further instructions uh, so they could pour into Philadelphia and stop people from voting. And uh, in retrospect, maybe someone should have said something about that, but they just didn't. And, you know, this is where we are. That is where we are. Sorry, this is a little bit grim, everybody, but this was grim. And I think it's worth calling that out. I think it is worth like, this is where we are. It's not, I'm not doing like a, this is how the American experiment ends. Like we've actually been in places like this before and it has gone worse than, than I think this one will go. But it would be a disservice to suggest that the place we're in isn't truly dangerous and just truly telegraphed. I mean, I'll say this is maybe my final comment, but there's a part of me that almost respects and definitely appreciates Donald Trump's lack of subtlety and guile. That when you ask him something like, will you condemn white supremacists? He doesn't just say, of course, but then like continue sort of working with them on the sly. That when you ask him like, what's going to happen in the election? Will you tell your people to stand down? He doesn't just say, of course, I have every confidence the election is going to be carried out reasonably. And then if he wants to screw things later, does that in the moment. I mentioned Masha Gessen's point earlier that the language and pageantry of liberal democracy can often obscure what Donald Trump is. And they, in their book and, and in their appearance on, on my show, make this point that when you talk about, when you add all the normal nouns around Donald Trump, it can make everything seem really normal. Donald Trump is a president of the United States who participated in a presidential debate against Joe Biden this week. And he lied a bunch and gave a really aggressive performance, which he interrupted constantly. And it would be very hard from something like that to understand the flavor of what just happened. And I appreciate, I appreciate Donald Trump for working so hard to break the boundaries of that, to show what he is constantly and to say, like, in a very real way, like, there's no excuse. There's nothing we didn't know, nothing we didn't see. You know, even the Trump tax returns just came out. Like they just, they functionally told us what we know. The guy's a, a aggressive tax dodger, but also he's a marketer who does well in his branding business and fails at everything he tries to actually run. Like, like everything else with Trump, the secrets are not secrets. The truth is all the way out there. And oftentimes he just basically says it, except on, you know, that he's a bad businessman. That's the one truth about himself that he can never quite come to admit. But in a lot of other ways, like, there's this constant like, oh, I told, you know, Bob Woodward something or like something will come out that he, you know, like Don, like there's a, the Jeffrey Goldberg piece that he called, you know, people who fight in wars losers that he called so that he dismissed soldiers. And then he but he did that publicly with John McCain a bunch of different times. Like we know who he is. And I'll say this for America, that if this was actually democracy where the people got who they voted for, like the the people, the person who got the most votes won, nobody would think Donald Trump has any chance of winning the election at all. And he also wouldn't be president now. So like his only shot is that he will lose, but lose in such a way that he can still win. And now that he will lose, but 
either lose in such a way that he can still win or somehow manage to like distort the election so like the losing doesn't matter. So we're we're not at a place where what the issue is is Donald Trump's animal magnetism simply attracts so many people to his side. And he really does try to show like that like what he is is this. And do you want this? Like he doesn't, it's not hidden. There's not like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. But that also means we have no excuses. Like we knew what he was. Uh, in 2016, he used to get on stage and he would recite this rhyme or song or poem called The Snake. And uh, I'm going to get it wrong from memory, but it, it's a take on the old fable of like, you know, you're carrying a snake across the river and then at the end, the snake bites you. And you say like, why why, the, why did you do that? Like now we're both going to die. And the snake says, you knew what I was. You knew I was a snake when you picked me up. And he always used that as a fable on immigrants. But like with everything with Trump, it's a massive act of projection. And it's him. Like he's the snake. And we knew what he was when we picked him up. And he never tires of reminding us of what he is. It's like we have plenty of information now. Now we just have to use it. And unfortunately, because of the structure of our system, use it in such numbers that it actually matters. Well, you right. know, with that, as show. You know, it's, uh, it's something for everyone to think about. Um, you know, thanks. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. Uh, the Weeds will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.